0: everybody, my name is Mikal Nasrani, and this is Islam for Christians. Episode 27, Islamic History, circa 613, Muhammad Goes Public. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, he did so in style, entering as the prophecy said someone would enter Jerusalem. And then he entered the temple as a man of stunning authority, but also novelty, Who was this man, people must have thought. Where did he come from, and why does he talk like this? His presence was novel, something completely out of the ordinary. And the people in Jerusalem saw Jesus as he wished to be seen, as the person he had promoted since the beginning of his ministry. He could come to Jerusalem and be anything he wanted to be, much like an 18-year-old going away to college across the country. That person can claim to be anyone, to be any type of person, and is completely starting from scratch among a new set of people. There will be no former classmates to negate the narrative that the new college student has created. But what if that was impossible? Say Jesus wasn't from Galilee. What if he was a city boy, or holy city boy, growing up in Jerusalem around the temple and rubbing shoulders with the holy authorities? What if Jerusalem had known Jesus since he was a boy and he was just an ordinary carpenter who suddenly proclaimed himself to be a holy man? I doubt he would have ridden into the city on a donkey. Now this is the hypothetical situation that Muhammad stepped into in Mecca. When Muhammad publicly proclaimed his ministry, he had to win over people who had known him very, very well and for a long time. He was Abu Talib's nephew, Khadijah's husband, a good merchant and an honest man, no doubt. But for 40 years, there was nothing about Muhammad that would have suggested he would upset anything or do anything radical or subversive. This was Al-Amin, after all. He was known for helping people get along. It's how he was known and had really been known for several decades. Now. Imagine you have lived in a town for 40 years. There is a good but otherwise unremarkable man, say, a local business owner, or a really good, honest car mechanic. Let's go with the car mechanic. The people trust him with their cars. He always fixed them well, and he never overcharged anyone. He even diagnosed problems for free. The Al-Amin mechanic shop was a town institution and everyone thought Muhammad was a great mechanic and a great guy. Now imagine that same guy decides to run for mayor. Not only that, but he promises to change the entire system of government using a political philosophy even the educated folks had never even heard of. They would probably say things like, What happened to Muhammad the mechanic? I used to like him. Or, Muhammad is just a mechanic. What does he know about commerce or government? Now, Muhammad the Mechanic would probably find some willing disciples in his garage and maybe his family, and certainly the votes of those so upset or disadvantaged by the current system that they see any change as positive. But those would probably be the only votes he would get. If someone is threatening to upset the apple cart in such an extreme way, people are going to want more evidence than visions from a god that they cannot see. In real life, Muhammad was a merchant, obviously, not a mechanic. And he was threatening to upend not just the political order in Mecca, but also the religious and economic one. And really, they were all tied together, which is important to understand. Mecca was a tourist town, and its ability to host worshippers of every god imaginable was seen as indispensable. Even if the Meccans realized they were wrong about religion, you can never convince someone to view anything positively if it likely means they're going to be unemployed. Um, You know, this is timeless, really. Uh, Just one example from here in America. Um, Both parties hold their first presidential primaries in the state of Iowa, which gives it outsized influence in national politics. Now, Iowa is full of corn farmers who disproportionately benefit from a government mandate on ethanol. All gasoline, or petrol as they say in some places, is blended by law with 10% ethanol. What's ethanol? Ethanol is basically distilled corn, I think, similar to that. It's like burnable alcohol made from corn. So basically they're burning corn. Now many people see this as a blatant and twisted government giveaway to a special interest group. Ethanol is, I've heard from many, many smart people, an utterly useless product. It doesn't help anyone or anything other than the farmers who grow the corn, turn it into ethanol, and sell it to the energy companies who don't want it in the first place. So what do the politicians say in front of these farmers? Do they denounce this practice, or do they encourage it? 99% of those who come to Iowa either endorse the issue or do not touch it. Why? Like religion in Mecca, it's an untouchable third rail. A third rail, for those of you who don't know that term, um, you know, in many elevated trains and subways, the rail that provides the electricity is the third rail. You touch the third rail, it kills you. Um, it's a very common expression in America. To touch the third rail means just do something unthinkable and frankly stupid. Anyway, back to ethanol. Many farmers depend on it, and I seriously doubt any of them really care why they're growing the corn. They just know they have jobs, and they won't vote for anyone who threatens that. And just like you don't go into San Francisco and bash tech, and you don't go into Texas and bash fracking and oil, and you don't go into Idaho and talk about the evil of potatoes, you do not go into Mecca and bash the cornucopia of gods that provide the backbone of the city's economy. You don't need to step into a time machine to understand how this would be received, how Muhammad would be received in a place like Mecca. Remember that Mecca sees millions of pilgrims every year, so it's still a pilgrim economy. You know, imagine if someone went into modern Mecca, which has the same thing, and proclaimed Islam to be a false religion and that Allah didn't really exist. That person would be separated from his head within five minutes. Now, remember that for many Meccans, the religious aspect of all of this is only part of it. Think of the Meccans as those Iowa farmers. Again, just to clarify, I'm talking about ancient Meccans, not current Meccans. So, the Meccan polytheists and Iowa farmers rely for their livelihoods on an idea that may not stand up to harsh scrutiny. So if anyone threatens that idea, they threaten the economic life of many, many people. The article of faith can even fade into the background. You know, if I'm an Iowa farmer, do I care if ethanol is useless? Honestly, I certainly wouldn't. You know, few people are interested in the truth if it's going to make them unemployed. It's a very important thing to understand about this portion of Islamic history and the Meccan reaction to Muhammad. You know, I think it's critical to remember that always when learning about Muhammad's struggle against the Meccan powers that be. You know, this is just something that has to be always, ever present in the back of your head. Now, Islamic lore tends to turn this into a simple good versus evil religious narrative, but it's way more complex than that. The economic picture should be in the back of your mind always, even if you agree, and even Christians, I'm sure, agree, or would take Muhammad's side against the pagans of Mecca. Okay, so into this situation steps Muhammad. Yesterday he was an ordinary merchant, now he's proclaiming to be a prophet. And he wasn't just a run-of-the-mill holy man, he was proclaiming that the gods of the Kaaba are false, that the entire system of Mecca is built on a lie. Who's going to listen to that? Well, just as in the earlier metaphor of Muhammad the Mechanic, it will be those who know him best at first. Family like Khadijah and Ali, friends like Abu Bakr. But it's important to remember that not all of Muhammad's family would end up converting. Immediate family, yes. But extended family? Not entirely. First and foremost, Muhammad's former guardian, current uncle, and tribal chieftain, Abu Talib, did not convert, and he never would. He supported his nephew, which would be important in keeping the Muhammad Mecca war relatively bloodless, bloodless, <laughs> at least among the uh, upper class, that is. But he also had to watch as his family split over the issue. Some immediate families were even divided, families other than Muhammad's. You saw several wives converted, but they couldn't convince their husbands, so it was actually a mixed household, religiously. Now, one of these unconvinced husbands was Hamza. Remember that name. He will be important. Uh, He also was Muhammad's uncle. So now Muhammad was going public with his ministry. This was around the year 613. So, who else would listen outside of who I already mentioned? Primarily those who didn't get a cut of pilgrim loot. Slaves, women, the people on the lower runs of society who had no stake in the current system. But not just lowborns, actually. Many early young converts were sons who were lower in the pecking order than their older brothers. Um also foreigners were receptive to the message. Uh, the most famous of these would be Bilal, an Abyssinian slave who would become a major figure in the religion. Abyssinia was right across the Red Sea, and, like today, it was a Christian kingdom. Uh, the modern name is Ethiopia. When Muhammad went public, the backlash was not immediate from most Meccans. He received plenty of mockery, but no outright violence at this point. That would soon change, you know, and we'll address the early persecution in next month's history episode. But for now, most just looked at Muhammad with puzzlement, amazement, curiosity. You know, they were particularly confused about the day of judgment. It seemed fantastical and impossible to believe. Really, they would say? My bones will be raised from dust on the day of judgment. Now, maybe some historians have figured this out, but I still do not understand why this was such a sticking point with the Arabs in the, uh, what they call the Jahaliyyah. It's what they call the time before Islam in Arabia. You know, this selective skepticism came from a people who believed in invisible jinn and the ability of a stone to bring about good fortune. It's such an inconsistent thought pattern. Then again, you do see this in our time as well. You know, there are several people I have met personally who believe in God, believe that God is infinite, and despite that, cannot fathom that he can hear the prayers of billions of people, or that he doesn't care about things that seem trivial compared to other things. Again, why? There's no reason for that. Infinite means infinite. If you have an infinite supply of water isn't the teardrop just as large as the ocean? This is why no one does fractions with infinity as the denominator. But it would be several centuries before Arabs discovered the Greeks, so really no one was around to point that out. So just to recap that point, the Arabs at the time just found it completely nuts that God could raise their bones and give them eternal life on the Day of Judgment. The people of the time also questioned the moral aspect of all of this. Muhammad was bringing in somewhat Christian values into this world. He was preaching the absolute worth of those whom society scorned and discarded. You know, the humble beggar as the equivalent of the rich man, very gospelly. you know. You can take a cynical view of why this was rejected, especially among the upper class, and you'd probably be right. The rich man does not want to hear about the camel passing through the eye of the needle. Christians will understand that reference. And the important person who revels in being above others does not want to hear that he's no better than anyone else, and that God will judge him for looking down on society's lowest and treating them badly. But if you want to, a more charitable view you can give is that they just didn't believe Muhammad. I mean, be honest. Especially those who live in large cities. Do you pay any attention to the guy on the street corner rambling about religious topics? And if some kid you had known for decades suddenly said he had a message from God, would you believe him? So they mostly just dismissed him as those people would be dismissed today. Uh, Besides, he was harmless, many thought, just like some rambling lunatic on a street corner. But again, This would quickly change once he started to gain more followers and finally began to present a threat to the powers that be. That shift from harmless street preacher to dangerous subversive would end up taking about two years. So that would take us into the year around 615. And when Muhammad the mechanic becomes an actual threat to the system he is supposed to be serving, that's when things get really ugly. So, for basically the second half of this episode, for the rest of this episode, um, I want to focus on some characters. You know, I've realized that not all of you know the characters that I have mentioned previously. So, before this ends, I want to give a quick description of those in the Muslim story thus far. So, <laughs> Muhammad, you know him. I'll just move on. Let's go to his wife, Khadijah. K-H-A-D-I-J-A. It's kind of hard to say in Arabic. It's a sound, Um, kind of similar to the Hebrew sounds you may have heard before. Um, So Khadijah is in her upper 50s at this point, having led a very full life. She was a successful businesswoman even before she married Muhammad. And after his prophecy, she had the honor of being the first Muslim. Khadijah believed Muhammad because she knew him. He was, after all, once her employee, and she was so impressed with his ethics and, efficiently, and efficiency that she married him. Now, another important person is Ali. Ali was born in 600, really easy to remember, is still just a kid at this point. And at this time, Muhammad is basically Ali's father. At the time, Muhammad, who was doing better financially than Ali's father, took in Ali. I remember Ali's father is Abu Talib, if you remember that name. I'll get back to him. I'll get to him a little later. Um, no one really knows why Muhammad ended up raising Ali, you know, whose father, Abu Talib, was far from poor. You know, I think for Muslims it's just easier to say it was providence. Muhammad certainly couldn't have asked for a better son. Ali was Muhammad's first cousin, the son of his uncle. And Ali would later marry Muhammad's daughter, Fatima. Now, Fatima was alive at this point in history, maybe around eight years old, five years younger than Ali. But she won't really work her way into Islamic history for quite some time. Now, just a quick section on uh, Muhammad's biological children, just for those who weren't aware. Muhammad had no biological sons at this time in history. And he never would, at least not for very long. Muhammad actually had three biological sons over the course of his life, but all would die within a few years of being born. He would have four daughters who all died before the age of 30 themselves. And this is a tragedy that is almost always overlooked when talking about Muhammad. And it's just gut-wrenching to think that he had to bury six of his own children throughout his lifetime. I just want to throw up thinking about that. It really makes me ill to think of the emotional chasm this would fling most people into. I doubt I would ever recover. Actually, I know I would never recover. Muhammad did it six freaking times, and his final biological daughter would end up dying just a few months after he did. So because of this, when it comes to Muhammad's children, you should just limit yourself to remembering three people. Ali, who was actually his cousin, Fatima, Muhammad's youngest, who would marry Ali, and Zayd, Muhammad's adopted son. So Zayd. Zayd isn't nearly as influential as Islamic giants like Khadija and Abu Bakr and Ali. But just the same, he was one of the earliest converts, just like that. By the time of Muhammad's ministry, Zayd was actually Muhammad's adopted son. He had been a slave of Khadijah's at one point, but he was freed and adopted. And with Zayd, just a a crazy story to file away for the future, because I'm sure you'll hear at some point. Eventually, Zayd's wife will divorce him and then marry Muhammad, his adopted father. Uh, this is in the Quran, actually. See Surah 33 verses 37 and 38 um, for God's specific blessing of this specific marriage. And then it's followed two verses later by a declaration that Muhammad is not really the father of any of your men, and that he is the seal of the prophets. That's where this term comes from. Now in this, the Quran is giving a ruling on whether the marriage is technically incest, because... Zaid was Muhammad's adopted son, and when he married, that woman became Muhammad's daughter-in-law. So, technically, from a legal standpoint, Muhammad was marrying his daughter. That was the criticism, and it's what those verses are rebutting. Um, don't feel sorry for Zaid, though. Uh, I, I really think he was okay with it. This wasn't a huge, huge deal. The marriage was a the marriage in question was a complete disaster. It lasted only a year, and I believe that was his fifth marriage. He would marry six times in his life. Uh, I'm sure many of you have a crazy uncle with similar stories. I know I do. Oh, and Zayd died before Muhammad, too, just racking up the tragedies. So if you count Zayd, that's seven children Muhammad buried. It's also important to not think of Zayd as a little kid, though. He was only about 10 years younger than Muhammad, making him nearly 50 years old when he eventually fell in the Battle of Mutah in 629. And now, Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr was Muhammad's friend, but he was one of those friends who are basically the same as family. Abu Bakr was a wealthy merchant in Mecca, and his wealth would be indispensable in the early days of Islam. Abu Bakr had everything to lose by embracing Islam, but did so full-throatedly anyway. It would eventually cost him everything. But that situation would be reversed once the Muslims took Mecca. Abu Bakr was one of those rich guys who didn't act like a rich guy. You know, I'm trying to think of a modern example. You know, maybe Warren Buffett or that guy who founded Aldi. I'm not can't really think of any real, real good analogies, but Among the wealthy noblemen who joined the early Muslim community, most were recruited by Abu Bakr. This includes Uthman, who would be one of the rightly guided caliphs later on. So, if you're counting, three of the four rightly guided caliphs converted to Islam almost at the start. Abu Bakr, Uthman, and Ali. But Umar would still be a few years away. So now Abu Talib um abu talib who i introduced a bit earlier plays a fascinating role in islam it, the complexity of what must have been in his head is kind of stunning and i i would just he would be one of the guys i would love to interview if i could go back because i just fully can't understand how he was able to keep his head in two places simultaneously um you know he loves his nephew but he never accepts his prophethood. Muhammad's new career eventually pulls his clan apart, but Abu Talib goes to his grave, hoping that would not happen. And it is Abu Talib's presence that allows Muhammad to push things as far as he did while remaining in one piece. In the end, Abu Talib was basically Gandhi trying to keep a newly independent India in one piece. It was an impossible task, and once he was sidelined, there would be blood. Now Abu Talib and Muhammad stuck together to the end, but each fully understood the forces pulling them apart, and it saddened both of them. It pained Muhammad that Abu Talib would not accept Islam, and it pained Abu Talib that Muhammad's new prophethood was tearing his clan apart and straining his relationships and hurting Muhammad personally as well. As he was pained at the pain his actions caused, his uncle Muhammad, that is, you know, was upset that all of this was causing pain to his uncle. He wasn't indifferent to it. You know, there's there's a lovely little story that sums up the relationship between the two um, from about six thirteen until Abu Talib's death. Now the story goes something like this: Muhammad saw the pain his uncle was in and he wanted to communicate that he really had no choice in the matter. Muhammad said to Abu Talib, quote, My uncle, by God, if they were to place the sun in my right hand and the moon in my left hand and tell me I had to abandon this ministry, I would still not stop until God made it victorious or I'd die preaching to my last breath. Unquote. Muhammad began to cry. And his uncle told him, nephew, go and say whatever you like. I will never surrender you to anyone. So the next time on Islamic history, uh, things turn violent, Islam gets its first martyr, and some notable additions to the Islamic ummah, or community. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah.